Well, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here and I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. Now, let me just say this. If you came out last week, you noticed we weren't here <laughs> because a lot of us got COVID. We're all better now, thank God, but a lot of us got it. And so if you didn't get the note, we're sorry about that. And so this would be a good time to say, this is why you should use the QR code to give us your information. If we have to shut down the church for a hurricane or whatever, the best way we can reach you is through email. And of course, you guys check your emails, but we send them to you anyway. But today, we are kicking off this brand new series that we are calling the Big Ten, which I've been told is a football conference where sports are played with that kind of... <laughs> All right, go team. I don't know who's in it. Uh, Giants? Anyway, so for the next, so like we're going to be doing for the next five weeks, it is a five-week series. For the next five weeks, we are going to be taking a look at the Ten Commandments, the, the most famous set of rules that the world has ever seen. Now, as humans, most of us are humans here, we've got rules coming at us from every angle, all directions. We've got rules all day long, start to finish. Government gives us rules. CDC gives us rules. I mean, they're changing every day, but like they're giving us th these rules. Your HOA gives you rules, which are pretty much the most annoying rules. Like, who are you? Like, tell me how to make my shrubs. Anyway, like, job gives you rules. Teachers give you, and God gives us rules. So we got a lot of rules as humans that we are dealing with and, and, and juggling with. And I think because of that, I think sometimes we get our wires crossed, our signals crossed when it comes to how to understand the role of God's rules in our lives. I think we actually get tripped up in understanding what all of that looks like and, and what God's rules mean for our spiritual life. Because many people, and maybe you're one of these people, and if you are, I'm glad that you're here today, but many people sort of look at God's rules and, and we say to ourselves, well, in order for God to love you, you need to obey his rules. In order for God to love me, I need to obey his rules. In order for God to know that I exist, in order for me to find credibility in God's eyes, in order for me to find worth in God's eyes, I need to obey his rules. And the better you obey his rules, the more he likes you, and the more he will bless you because of it. I believe that this way of thinking has done more damage than anything else. I think this idea that we, we can perform our way to God, behave our way to God, obey our way into God's good graces has done more to alienate people from God than anything else. Now, even if you're a lifelong Christian, and I know that many of you are lifelong Christians, there's a, you, know, you would say, you know, I, I don't ever remember a time when I didn't really know Jesus. Even if you're a lifelong Christian, we still struggle with this concept. Because Scripture is loaded with rules. I mean, take the you know, Ten Commandments and put them off to the side for a second. I mean, the New Testament alone is chock full of rules, the things that you should be doing as a Christian, the things you shouldn't be doing as a Christian. Jesus did one whole long sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he really jacked up the bar. He said, you know, you've heard you shall not murder, right? It's one of the top ten. I'm just letting you know, in God's eyes, if you're just angry with somebody in your heart, you've murdered them already. Oh, so now what? <laughs> so like that, it's sort of, we're confused. We have so many rules, particularly even within our own religion. How does this all come together? So let me do a quick test. If you're a Christian in the room, just for the Christians, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want a quick answer. I don't want you to say anything out loud. 
You don't need to raise your hand or anything. Just answer it in your heart. And I want it to be quick. I don't want you to think too much about it. Just boom, answer it. All right? When you die, right? When you die, are you going to heaven? Ooh, I like that. Like if you were to die tonight and it's all over, that's all she wrote, would you go to heaven? Now, if you've been listening to the teachings of Jesus, if you've been listening to the New Testament authors, if you've heard anything I have said, anything Adam has said in this stage, anything these songs proclaim, you should be able to answer that question quickly. Yes. When I die, when I take my last breath, my heart beats its last beat, I will be in heaven. No delay, no doubt, absent of the body is present in the Lord. Yes. But if we're honest. <laughs> when we hear this question, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? Even though you've been a lifelong Christian, there's a knee-jerk reaction. There's something inside of you to sort of Examine the life you've been living and go, well, I hope so. I mean, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I prayed that prayer. I mean, but, but am I going to go to heaven? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I try to be a good person. I mean, I've, I've been messing up a lot lately. You know what? Maybe I better pray that prayer again. What is that? All right? I mean, come on. I'm not the only one. I hope. I mean, not that I do. Right? Well, look, where did that come from? Because God, in sending Jesus Christ into this world, could not have sent a stronger message that you could never find acceptance with God through your behavior. It's not going to happen. And yet, even for us Christians in the room, this is one of those truths that we have to keep rehearsing. We've got to keep reiterating to ourselves and reminding ourselves that this is not the case. So where did this idea come from that God has these rules? He kind of put them out there as a test, and he sits back, arm crossed, and just watches us just to see how we do. And if we nail them, he loves us. And if we fail, well, mm, nice knowing you. I would argue that it all started with the Ten Commandments. Now, it's an actual picture of the Ten Commandments. I Googled it, and this came up, and so this is what it all looks like. So over the next five weeks, we are going to be examining the Ten Commandments, the greatest set of rules of humanity, of the history of the world. Rules that I would argue, and we're going to see this in the upcoming weeks, that we may have misunderstood at times, and we may perhaps have even misapplied. And my hope is by the end of this series, honestly, by the end of the day is, is my real hope and prayer, that every single one of you will believe in your heart. And when I say this, I want you to, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. I really want you to believe in your heart that God's rules are a confirmation of his love for you, not a condition of his love for you. Now, before we jump into these rules, let me just say a couple of things about rules. I believe that you can learn a lot about a person based on the rules they give. I do. I, I think you can discern what is important to a person. I think you can discover what's important to a person. I think you can figure out what matters to an individual based on the rules that they give. Classic example. Take your parents for a moment, right? No matter what age you are, everybody has parents at some point in their life. Think about your parents. Every one of us, I have to imagine, had sort of house rules, right? The Garippa family rules, you got the Cooper family rules, take your last name, add it in. We all had rules growing up. And maybe in your house, your rules were, you know, we don't say shut up in this house. 
right? That was a big one for a lot of people. We don't say shut up in this house. Or we don't say you're stupid in this house. And that rule reflected and, and told you that your parents valued respect, right? We respect each other in this house. So even if you're acting stupid, we're not going to call you stupid, right? Even if you need to shut up, you get the point. Now, in my house, there was one major rule, one sort of overarching rule in our house. And I've told you guys this, this rule before, but for us, it was the Gribba family goes to church. That's it. Nothing, and when I mean nothing, I mean nothing, nothing took precedence over us getting into the car and going to church every Sunday to thank God and to worship God for who he is and, and what he's done in our lives. Now, that's not an easy rule for a teenager. Quite frankly, it's not an easy rule for anybody of any age because this rule required sacrifice. It really did. I knew because of this family rule that there were never going to be sleepovers for me on a Saturday night at a friend's house. I mean, it could be the best sleepover since like the last days of Rome. You're not going to be there because we're going to get up and we're going to go to church. I knew because of this rule that summer vacations would either come to an end early or would get interrupted on a Sunday because we were going to church. Sunday brunch? I'm not sure what that is. I don't, I've never <laughs> that's a new word for me. I didn't, okay, so, but I would argue this rule helped shape my relationship with God because my parents' rule showed me something. It showed me that God was important. This rule that they gave my family gave me insight into my parents' heart and into my parents' character. And because of this rule, I saw that a relationship with Jesus was important to them. And so a relationship with Jesus should be important to me. Now, in the same way, as we look at God's rules today and for the next few weeks, we're going to find out what is important to God, what matters to him. Because God's rules don't just show us what he wants us to do, but they show us who he is. They show us what he is like. God's rule says something about his character and his honor. His rules say something about his worth and his majesty. And as we look at these Ten Commandments, we're going to discover what is valuable to God. To do this, all series long, we're going to be camping out in Exodus chapter 20. If you ever want to find out where the Ten Commandments are, this is where you find them. You ask any Christian, hey, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Yeah, absolutely. You know where to find them? No. Can you name them? Not really. Oh, good start. <laughs> Like, we were doing a test beforehand, staff got like 8 out of 10. So we need some work on this side, too. But let me give you a little bit of background information on the giving of the Ten Commandments, because really that's what it is. They're not just listed there. God gives them to us, and that's what we're going to be seeing. So Exodus, the book of Exodus, the reason it's called Exodus is because the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, they will be called the Jews at some point, they have just made their exodus out of Egypt. Why? Because the last 400 years, they had been slaves in Egypt. Think about that. 400 years. Now, God actually told this guy named Abraham, who was really the patriarch of the Jewish faith, hundreds of years before this, he told Abraham, this was going to happen. In fact, let me show you what God said to Abraham. Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, that's his name, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, that's going to be Egypt, where they'll be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Not the news you want to get from God about your kids. But 
I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they, meaning your descendants, will come away with great wealth. So this happened. And for 400 years, those Jewish folks were in captivity in Egypt. And during that time, you go back and read scripture, during that time, God was essentially silent. They really knew nothing of God. I mean, they had heard stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that was 400 years ago. I mean, quite frankly, they knew more about the Egyptian gods than they did about this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, God shows up, just as he said he would. And he reached out to a man named Moses, and he tapped Moses, and he goes, hey, I need you to free your people. And through an amazing series of events, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit, the Jewish people are freed. Moses brings them out into the desert, and now it is Exodus 20, our passage today. They are surrounding Mount Sinai. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai in the presence of God, about to receive the Ten Commandments. Let's jump in and take a look. Exodus 20, we'll start in verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words. Let's not take this lightly. This is a massive moment in history. It doesn't always happen that God cracks open heavens and just speaks to us. And in this moment, he is going to dictate to Moses what matters to him, what's important to him, what he values. And he says, I am the Lord, your God. Moses hears this and he thinks, well, you mean you're the Lord, the God, right? Because you said your God. But you mean the Lord, the God. God says, no. I am the Lord, your God. Hmm. So that makes us your people. Mm-hmm. But when did this happen? I mean, we, we haven't even done anything yet. You, have, you haven't given us any rules to obey yet that would sort of make us your people. What, what, what happened? He goes, Correct. You haven't done anything yet. You belong to me. I am yours. You are mine. And then God takes Moses down memory lane. He says, I am the Lord your God who, don't forget, brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, three months earlier, just like we talked about, God went to Moses and said, I need you to go to Pharaoh, who's the ruler of Egypt. And I need you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And famously, if you know the story, Pharaoh said, mm, no, that's, we're not going to do that. Our, our entire economy is based on, on slavery. We're not going, we're, we're not going to let the Hebrews go. Thank you very much for the offer, though. That's not going to happen. And to force the Pharaoh's hand, God sent plague. Plague after plague after plague. And all the while, the Israelites are standing on the sidelines watching these incredible plagues happen, thinking, my gosh, what is going on? Someone is trying to rescue us, and we don't even know their name. We don't even know who they are. But in spite of all the plagues, Pharaoh wasn't budging. And so the story lets us know that God had one last trick up his sleeve. And so he reaches back to Moses, and he prepares him for this last and final plague. And God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family. 
God then goes on to describe what this particular lamb should look like. It has to be a year old. It needs to be a, a boy lamb. Can't have any kind of defects. You've got to find the best example of a lamb you can find. And then God says, I want you to slaughter that lamb. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. Now, I can only imagine what Moses thought when he heard this. He's just like, you want me to do what? With the blood? And God says, I, w- I want you to slaughter the lamb. I want you to take the blood, and I want you to paint it on your doors. Well, if that's what you want us to do, we'll do it. And then God describes what the final plague would be. On that same night that you slaughter the lamb and paint it on your doors, I will pass through Egypt and strike down, I will kill every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. This is where the Jewish holiday came from. I will pass over you. And this plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. I just want to make sure we understand what we just saw here. The blood of that lamb saved the Jewish people from death and judgment. Here's what God is saying right here. Here's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. I want to be your savior. I want to be your rescuer. I want to come down into the midst of your greatest need, and I want to be your deliverer. And all I need you to do, listen, all I need you to do is trust me. And I know the lamb with the blood, I know that sounds crazy, and you only have to do it one time, but I want to see that blood as evidence of your faith in me. I want to see you trust me. Well, they trusted God. They did as he said, and they were saved. And now it's three months later, and there are two million Jews out in the middle of the desert, and Moses is on Mount Sinai about to receive God's rules. And right here in Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, we find the greatest news you will ever hear. And that is that a relationship with God is not established by keeping the rules. Because God established a relationship with the nation of Israel before they even knew the rules. God illustrated to the whole world that I have chosen a people, not because of what they have done, not because of how they have performed, not because of the rules they have kept, but because they trusted me. Faith is all it takes to establish a relationship with me. And now that we're a family, God would say, now that I'm your father, now that you are my daughters, now that you are my sons, now that you are in, now I'll give you my rules. And he gives Moses the very first rule, the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And I imagine Moses hears it and goes, done. Could put a check by that one, boss. Not a problem. You rescued us. 
You, you've given us a future. You, our children now have a future. We would be crazy to look to any other God but you. You are our God. See, what becomes clear in the giving of the Ten Commandments is that if God has ever blessed you with a rule, it's because you're already in a relationship with him. Because the one thing that God knows, it's the one thing that every parent knows, and it's the one thing that every child knows, and it's the one thing that every politician should know, is that rules without a relationship always results in rebellion. Always. It's how we became a nation. There was taxation without representation, and now we're a nation. They gave us a rule. We had no relationship with them, and now we're America. It's human nature. If you impose a rule on me and we have no relationship, I will resist. I will rebel. God knows this. He knows. He, he created human nature. He is aware of this. God is not foolish enough to think, here's a bunch of rules, right? Now do the best you can, and I'll decide if you accept you. You get eight or nine out of ten? Okay. We'll talk. Any less than that, we're going to have a problem. We would resist that. In fact, I think that's why many of you here today, perhaps, or watching online, have actually resisted church or resisted God. Because in, in your mind and in your experience in trying to understand God, it was just, here's a bunch of rules. Now, do the best you can. That was God for you. That was church for you. And all the while, God is like, I never said that. I never implied that. I never modeled that. I never illustrated that. In fact, 3,500 years ago, in the most dramatic way possible, on a mountaintop with thunder and lightning, God spoke from heaven and said, the commandments are not a condition of the relationship. They're a confirmation of the relationship. My rules for you are not a condition of my love for you, but a confirmation of my love for you because a relationship always precedes rules. 1,400 years ago, Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples. The same event recalled in the Ten Commandments, and he was in the upper room. We now call it the Last Supper. And during that night, he, at one point, he lifts up a cup of wine. And he looks at his disciples and he goes, this cup used to represent the spilling of the lamb's blood that saved our ancestors from death and judgment. But tonight, everything changes. From this moment on, whenever you come together to celebrate Passover, this cup now represents my blood, which has been spilled out for the forgiveness of sins for many. And then he commanded his disciples to go out into the world and invite everybody into an unconditional relationship with their Heavenly Father. A relationship that was not based on performance. A relationship that was not based on behavior or keeping the rules, but a relationship that was based on what God has already done for them through Jesus on that cross and in that tomb. 
to the entire Bible, start to finish, from the Ten Commandments through, through the life of Jesus, tells the exact same story that salvation is not a reward for obedience. And if you've been one of those folks who are hearing what I'm saying, you go, gosh, I'd love to be in with God. I'd love to have this personal relationship you're talking about. I'd love to be in the family with God. But then you look at your life and you look at your mistakes and your regrets and you think, yeah, but God would never accept me. Hear me when I say this. And this may be why you are here today. You don't have to live like that anymore. Because God accepted an entire nation of Jews before they had done anything right, before they even knew what was right. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he did the exact same thing for you. Scripture tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, look at this, while we were still sinners. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross because you got it all right. He died on that cross because he knew, he knew that you'd get it wrong. When he offered up his life, nobody took it from him. When he offered up his life, he assumed you would mess up. He assumed you would have regrets. And he assumed there would be mistakes. And so he looks at every single one of you and he says, I want you to be mine. And I want to be yours. I want to be your personal Lord and Savior. And all I need you to do, all I need you to do is what those Jews did some 3,500 years ago. I need you to trust me. I don't need you to slaughter a lamb and Put that blood on your door. I just need you to place your faith in my blood that was spilled for you. You do that, we'll have a relationship. And I will be the Lord, your God. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So to prepare us for this series, because today is really an introduction, I just have one question for you that I want you to think about today, tonight, meditate on next week, just to get us all on the same page. And it's this. Is it time to rethink the rules? Like in your journey with God, or maybe in your journey without God, have you sort of looked at God's rules as a way to prove yourself to him? Right? Have you, have you looked at his rules as sort of a test? And if you pass, you're in. And if you fail, you're out. And you really never know where you stand with God. Scripture is very clear. You have been invited into God's family. But you can't earn your way in. You can't obey your way in. You can't perform your way in or behave your way in. The only way in, thank God, the only way in is to trust what God has done for you. Paul, this guy who wrote over half the New Testament, said it like this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you 
will be saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, I actually think John, who was the best friend of Jesus, described it really well, particularly for the conversation today. And he did it in such an intimate way. He says, yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 3,500 years ago, when the Israelites showed their faith in God by putting that blood of the lamb on their doorposts, that act of faith ushered them into God's family. Today, all God is asking of you is that you trust. That you trust in what his son has already done for you on that cross. You do that, God would say, now, now you're my children. Now you are my sons. Now you are my daughters. And I am your heavenly father. We are now a family. Let me pray with you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that we get the opportunity to take a fresh look at the rules that you have given us. I pray, God, that today and for the rest of this series, you would open our eyes